every two years, it happens again. Some form of the Olympic Games. And I'm a sucker for it every time. I absolutely love... Um, I love watching the Olympics, and I don't know if it's because a lot of the events um, are for those of us that have short attention spans. And so it's over in a few minutes, and you kind of know who won or didn't. Um, But to see the way that countries host and invite the world to gather together is amazing to me. Um, Now... I stumbled upon a gallery of photos some months back that I'm not going to lie. It was disturbing to me. It was photographic uh, evidence of the various Olympic sites of various countries and what had happened to those venues in the years that followed. Now, there are some places like Atlanta that hosted the games in 1996 that just kind of leaned all into it and and made this big attraction in downtown Atlanta. But then there are other places in other parts of the world where the cost and the promises of hosting the games didn't translate into the economic boom that was originally offered. And you see the swimming centers crumbling. The places where great uh, rowing events happened with algae growing over. Places where track and field events were held Half the seats have been ripped out and half of them haven't. It's almost like a vision of an apocalyptic uh, place where humanity has vanished. There's an absurdity that the labors of one's hands one minute would fall into disrepair, disarray, and eventually disintegration. And that's this morning where we find ourselves as we listen to the professor, the teacher, the preacher in Ecclesiastes continue his report of his findings. So turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Stand, if you would, and let's listen to God's word. The preacher states, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity or absurdity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair 
over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it has given us a stay in love. Let's pray. Father, would your word speak to us now, for your servants are listening. Ultimately, our desire is to see Jesus and him only. So as always, we pray that you would forgive the one who preaches his sins, because there are many. Would you be so gracious as to shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow, such as me? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to wrestle a little bit with we're going to wrestle a little bit with work. I want to tell you really quickly as kind of a a, a prelude to all of this something that I learned from Dr. Tasha Chapman, who's a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. She teaches, among other things, she teaches research methodology. And for those of us that were getting ready to embark on uh, endeavors of research. She had these words for us to think about when it came to how we relate to our ideas. She said this. She, she said, think of it like one who works with clay or with ceramics or pottery. When the clay is soft, if you find um, mistakes, imperfections, if you find that you need to reshape it and start over, you can. But if you go and fire those ideas off in the kiln, there's really only one thing to do with the work that comes out. Take a hammer and smash it. She said all of this because she was trying to encourage us research students to not get so attached to our idea that we can't let it go if it turns out to be a bad idea. She said, don't worry. I'm very good with the hammer that I use. Part of the grace of Ecclesiastes that it is God's gracious hand 
take a hammer and break some bad ideas. Now, I do want to say this right on the outset, that if you think that what I'm going to do is, is, is talk to you about the dangers of working too hard, and we've all done that, right? We've all, uh, we've all put too many hours in, worked too hard, whatever. If you think that that's what this text is really after, that the solution is just work less and enjoy life more, that's not what it's about. So normally I try and, you know, do a slow build and save the conclusion to the end and whatever. And, and, and some of you probably aren't listening the whole way through. So let's just go ahead and lay the conclusion out now. Don't bury the lead, as they say. Um, it's not about how much you work. It's about why you work. It's about your heart. It's about your identity. It's about what, what you're trying to get your job to do for you rather than what you're trying to do in your job. Um, so that's what we want to we talk about. And I, I want to go ahead and, and set out that, that, again, as I've said in previous weeks, that um, Ecclesiastes are fit words. They're just not final words. For that, we need the rest of the Bible. Because over and over and over again, you hear the preacher in Ecclesiastes appealing to that which happens under the sun. And he says there's nothing new under the sun. The only reason that Ecclesiastes is not the final word on what happens under the sun is because the one thing the preacher could have never anticipated happening did. God intervened and clothed his son in flesh to rescue us from the absurdity of this world. But there is a blessing also of going through and wrestling with these questions. It is God showing solidarity with us. It is not God turning a blind eye to a broken world and looking at you and me and our neighbors and saying, why can't you get your act together? It's God saying, you think that's bad. (laughs) Wait till you get to chapter four, right? It's God saying, I know. It's not that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is is incorrect, it's incomplete. But on the surface, when you look at the world in which we live, in which we uh, we work and we play and we have families, there are ridiculous, absurd, heartbreaking things that happen. And this is where we have solidarity with our neighbors. Because Ecclesiastes wasn't written to those people out there who don't have faith and have to trudge along as if this world is all they've got. This book was written to the people of God who have faith, who still have to contend with the maddening inconsistency and absurdity of the world, all that happens east of Eden. And so we have to wrestle with chasing after things that we try to make satisfy us, and they can't. Wisdom is good, but it can't satisfy you. Pleasure is good, but it can't satisfy you. Work is good, but it can't satisfy you. 
So he goes and he, and he pulls out some of the ways that work is incredibly absurd and incredibly, um, incredibly frustrating. One other thing that I found interesting. So how many of you uh, know what pedagogy is? Yeah? Especially if you, I expect all the teachers in here to raise your hand. Homeschool, public school, private school, charter school, I don't care. You all know what pedagogy is, right? Pedagogy means instruction of a child. Andragogy is instruction of an adult. How do you instruct a child? You instruct a child this way. You instruct through memorizing and rote drills, um, the transfer of facts and ideas, spoon feeding, right? But andragogy, the, the teaching of adults, is different. What does that look like? It's, it's teaching through asking questions. It's, it's goading. It's getting people to look at their own foundations to discover truth for themselves. You're sitting in, in Ecclesiastes, you're not sitting in pedagogy, you're sitting in andragogy. You're sitting in a philosophy, uh, a philosophy class. You're hearing questions asking you to take stock of your ideas. So friends, here's my question for you. When is the last time that you allowed God to change your idea on something? When is the last time you allowed God to change your idea on something? So for some of us, this journey through Ecclesiastes may feel like the, the, the potter working with the clay that hasn't been fired off yet. It's still malleable and soft and we can change it. But for some of us, it... Um, it feels less like the gentle potter's hands and more like a hammer. But it's done in love. It's done in love to change us. So how does the preacher wrestle with work? What is he, what is he looking at? What is he saying? Because he's not talking about how much you work. He's talking about why you work. So let's look at what he says first in verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 through 21 says this, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about legacy, right? He's talking about legacy. He's talking about what's going to come next. Who takes up the work next? And look what he says. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of, of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also absurdity. This is maddening, right? Because we work in order to give ourselves a name, in order to build up for ourselves a legacy, in order to be able to transfer what we have done and the fruits and the benefits of what we have done potentially to our kids, potentially to our family, Potentially just for the good of the world or the communities in which we live, reside, and thrive. And he says, this is crazy. I mean, why do we work? Beyond paying our bills, beyond our daily bread, it's to make some sort of impact. So we think it is to matter. What does the teacher see? Listen, listen to how Eugene Peterson translates this over in the message. He says this. 
and I hated everything I had accomplished and accumulated on this earth. I can't take it with me. No, I have to leave it to whoever comes after me, whether they're worthy or worthless. And who's to tell? They'll take over the earthly results of my intense thinking and hard work. This is like a vapor. This is like smoke. We want to control our legacies, right? We want to be able to, to dictate um, making our work matter, right? We want our work, what we've done, what we've contributed to be burned onto the memories of people because at the end of the day, we want significance and we want to matter. And what do we find? That we can't control who will come after us. They're, they're going to undo it. They're going to undermine it. Are they going to upend it? And this is the maddening part of it all. The, the person who didn't work hard at all gets all of the benefits of someone else's tireless effort. But, but look at what else he sees. Look at what else he sees. In verses 22 and 23. Now, some of you may be going, I'm not working for a legacy. I'm working to make sure that the bank doesn't come and take my keys to my house. That's fine. Let's talk about that. In verses 22 and 23, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. This is absurdity. Again, listen to Eugene Peterson. That's when I called it quits. Gave up on anything that could be hoped for on this earth. What's the point of working your fingers to the bone if you hand over what you've worked for to someone else who never lifted a finger for it? Smoke, that's what it is. A bad business from start to finish. So what do you get from a life of hard labor? Pain and grief from dawn to dusk. Never a decent night's rest. Nothing but vapor, nothing but smoke. So, gone are the days, seemingly, where work can leave us alone. Now, some of you, some of you who are in medical professions, some of you who are first responders, some of you who are um, dealing, with, uh, dealing with things that are kind of always pressing, always on. Understand that you may be home, but you're never off. The reason that we put in the, in the program that I'm going to be on vacation is not because I necessarily am comfortable with you knowing about where I am or what I'm doing, because I'm a private person and that weirds me out. But it's so that you know if you call, I won't pick up the phone. And even if I did, I'm a thousand miles away. I'll still pick up the phone. That's probably not entirely true. I see the prayer request. We, we, we pray faithfully and regularly. I know how many of you feel like you're drowning in your job. And you go home and you feel like you're drowning in your job and you're not at your job. 
And you wake up the next morning and you go do it all over again. And it is maddening and it is exhausting. And the preacher says, I see you and I hear you. And it's madness, isn't it? What does it gain and what does it profit? We work our fingers to the bone and for what? You can't take any of it with you. And then you leave it to someone else and they take everything that you've done and they screw it all up. You see, it's that frustrating part of work is supposed to be a good thing. Work is supposed to be a satisfying thing. Work is supposed to be a fulfilling thing. And all it does is cause us to sleep less and worry more. So how many of you are, how many of you really are able to, to just unwind at the end of the day? James, you don't, you can't, it, you're, you're the exception. I love you. Those of you listening on the recording have no idea what's going on in here, and that's fine. Parents, how's it going unwinding and just not worrying about those kids that you're investing so much time in? All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in night, his heart doesn't rest. It is absurdity. You try to get ahead, you get set back. You work hard, work works you harder. When the stock market crashed after uh, Lehman Brothers in 2008, um, many people saw their retirement yanked away from them. Uh, and it was crushing. It was crushing to have worked for all of that time to put in all of that labor and then to realize it's all for what? It's all for what? There were sleepless nights. There was worry about how bills were going to be paid, how much longer tiring bodies would keep up with the pace demanded in order to work. And the teacher says, yes, this is absurd, but here's the problem. The problem is he doesn't have anything better to offer you. One more thing. There's one more thing. Look at this. In verses 24 and 25 and 26, okay, there are uh, varieties of opinions about how to interpret this. Some people would like to say, finally, the teacher has a little bit of a glint in his eye and a spring in his step. I don't think so. He's not that cheery. Because look, look what he says. There is nothing, so some have said, this is one of several carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes. This is one of several passages that talk about seize the day, Right? There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, he's not saying that those are bad things. He's just saying, look, that's the best I can offer you. It's the best I can offer you. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. By the way, did you know that in Ecclesiastes, every time God's name is used, it's not Yahweh. 
It's not the God who has personally and covenantally revealed himself to a people. It's a more abstract name for God. It's just the God who gives. Not my God. Not I am who I am. Just God. It's also a solace from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, this is not um, the type of passage that packages well and preaches a nice, uplifting sermon. Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Okay, so let's, we have to do a couple things here. You've got to not read this through the Apostle Paul first. You can't use Paul to read this, okay? You have to read this, but also listen to the rest of the Bible, okay? So what he's not saying here is to the one who pleases him, oh, those are the ones that, that have worked for God's blessing, worked for God's, um, worked for God's uh, um, favor, okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he recognizes that it is God who ultimately determines who receives what blessings, okay? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The problem is the unjust have taken the just umbrellas. He's not saying that to the person who has curried God's favor, God gives blessings, and to the one who doesn't deserve God's favor, God gives toil. What he's saying is, under the sun, what I can see is that I don't get how some people get blessings and some people get misery, but I get that it's from the hand of God, but I can't tell you why or how. You know the old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it that the person who works and toils hard for their entire day gets nothing and the person that games the system gets everything? Did the person who gamed the system somehow trump the sovereign hand of God? God permitted their ill-doing to bring them temporal gain. God permitted your hard work to not bring you temporal gain. And he says, this is absurd. Do you feel the tension of it now? That's what he's saying. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book that he put out in 2008 called Outliers, um, tried to say, yeah, it's not, it's not a system of hard work 
that really gets you, whatever. Do you realize that everyone who has made the most impact in Silicon Valley, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, whatever, were born between the years of 1953 and 1956. They happened to live in the same general geographic area. They were exposed to certain key societal events that happened over the course of their formative years and were at the right place at the right time. That's society's way of dealing with absurdity. The theological way of dealing with absurdity is, God, I don't know why you do this. But it's absurd. And he sees the injustice of it all. This is what seems to drive him the most mad here, is not God giving good gifts to good people and bad things to bad people. What he's seeing is that from what he can see, there is no rhyme or reason to explain why God has chosen to bless some and not others. The one who pleases God is not the one who earned God's favor, but the one upon whom God's favor rests. And the sinner, I mean, we're all sinners, we know this, but the, the sinner is the, is the one that just gets to kind of trudge along. Do you see this? It's injustice, and it gives him great pause. Because here's the thing. You and I live in a time and a space and a day and an age where much is made out of what we do. Our dignity, our purpose, our value, our meaning, it's tied up in what we do. And our legacy that we pass on to future generations is going to be told in the anecdotes of what was done. There may be some descriptions of your character, but it's going to be your character meted out in what you did. Look, I... I get, I stand up here every week and say to you with, with as much humility as I can muster that I am a pastor of a humble church, of a humble people in a part of Texas that um, is one of, of thousands of cities in Texas. And I say I'm good with that. But do you know what I want? I want you to notice me. I want people to notice me because I want to matter. And you want to matter too. That's the biggest thing, isn't it? We want to matter. We want to matter for what we do. We want to matter for what we engage in. We want to matter in the world in which we live. That the teacher's taking a hammer to the clay pot. And all he can offer you is take your drink and be merry. It's the rest of the Bible that we have to look to to understand really how we're going to get through this. What is labor's source of love? To be freed then from the meaninglessness and seeming absurdity of labor, of work, we have not to look under the sun, but from above. We have to disrupt our notions about labor and instead have God infuse them with what is actually true. If we can't look to our labor to provide us ultimate satisfaction, what then is it for? We engage in the labors of our toil because our calling, our work, our vocation is infused with goodness and nobility from God. Whether we are engaged in notable things or nominal things, our work is a participation of the redemptive work of God in the world. We work as unto the Lord. We are participating in the renewal of Christ in all things. And since the average person spends approximately in their vocational life 
80,000 hours, and that's just taking that you work 40 hours a week, about 2,000 or so work hours a year, for about 40 years. But some of it's more than that. Since the average person will spend about 80,000 hours of their life in their vocation, that means that much of our participation in the redemptive work of God happens in our jobs. And it doesn't mean that the only jobs that have kingdom value are pastor or missionary or some other vocational ministry type job. Um, when, When the person whose job it is is to push a broom, They are, with each sweep of the floor, pushing back the disorder and decay of the fall in this world. Those who work in the food service industry are serving people so that they can eat and drink and enjoy the good gifts of God's creation. Those who work in art or literature or music are not creating product to be sold, but they are creating beauty to be enjoyed. Those who are working at raising children are shaping and preparing the next generation of God's covenant people to participate in the kingdom of God one Lego at a time. The scientist unlocking more of the inherent beauty and complexity of God's world. The engineer bringing thought and structure to make those creative dreams possible. The reason that we need to disrupt our thinking regarding our work is because our work was never designed to contain our meaning. Neither was pleasure ever intended to be completely satisfying, nor was wisdom designed to give us full mastery and knowledge of all things at all times. The answer to the question is not don't let work rule you as if we are called to simply work less. The question is instead one of matter, one of significance, one of the heart. What is work for? And Ecclesiastes shows us work cannot define us. The only way this makes sense is for us to see that what happens in this world and in this life offers us no lasting legacy. But friends, this this passage is an invitation to the gospel, isn't it? This passage is an invitation to say, you're right. Your work cannot give you the legacy that you want. So instead, receive from God through Christ Jesus the legacy that was already secured for you. Your legacy, your significance, your matter, that you matter was secured not by the work of your hands, but by the work of Jesus. The work that you do is not to make you significant. You are significant. And because you are significant, Christ Jesus shed his blood and died on a tree so that you would have a new name and a new family and a new identity and a new legacy. We can't establish a legacy for ourselves. We live and are all but forgotten in a generation, but we can receive a legacy that has been established for us and then given to us by Christ. We can trust that we are beloved sons and daughters of the King whose value has been shown and secured on the cross and that we are co-heirs with Christ and together making all things new. Our work matters because our legacy is secure and our redemption is accomplished. So we can do the dirty jobs 
the menial jobs, the dull jobs, the maddening jobs, the exhausting jobs, the elating jobs. And they can have their proper place. We can enjoy the good gifts of God's creation, not because it's our consolation prize, like the teacher would say, but because they are foretastes and forerunners of the kingdom that is yet to come. Dear friends, we engage in work. We engage in the work that we do, and it matters because we are endowed and infused with gifts of the Spirit that allow each of us in our own unique way, in our own unique spheres, to participate with God in the renewal of all things. That's why I, I know I tell you that I don't get into you know, eschatology discussions. I look at Revelation and go, I don't know. But here's, here's what does matter, and I need you to hear this. Your view of where this is all going affects what you do in the present. If you think this whole thing's getting chucked into the cosmic dump heap and not a lick of stuff matters on this world, but if you believe that what you're doing right now is Lego by Lego, broomstick by broomstick, line of computer code by line of computer code, architecture, paintbrush, law enforcement, medical, pilot, that in all the spheres that God has given his people, if you believe that what you are doing is, saying, is laying the foundation for the kingdom that is to come and the world to be renewed and that world will have no end, then all of a sudden work matters. Not because of what it gives you, because of what you've been given. Yeah, it's absurd. But take heart. A better king and a better kingdom have come from above the sun to make all things new. And you and I are a part of that.